Welcome to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're talking about Robert Block's short story, Lucy Comes to Stay. This was originally published in the magazine Weird Tales in 1952. Now, we don't normally present a lot of biographical information about the authors we're reading, but of course, Robert Block is very well known for his novel Psycho, which went on to become that classic Hitchcock film. But Block also wrote some episodes for Star Trek, the original series in the late 60s. And we bring that up because Clay Temple Media also does a Star Trek podcast. Valerie Hoagland and I do a show called Lower Decks, where right now we're covering the second season of Star Trek Discovery, since that's back on the air after a very long hiatus. But when that's off the air, we cover some classic Trek episodes as well, though we haven't actually gotten to any of these that are written by Robert Block yet. We have a lot of fun over there, and we'd love to have you along with us for the journey. So please come check us out at Lower Decks. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Lower Decks is a great podcast, especially if you're interested in tracking what is going on in Star Trek Discovery by two avowed fans of the whole corpus of Star Trek series. So it's it's a lot of fun. Um, this story, though, by Robert Block, Lucy Comes to Stay, is a short story story it's very short about a a woman struggling at least on the surface with alcoholism though by the end of the story we we discover there might be more at play i enjoyed this story it was a really quick read which was refreshing i think for for us for the tales we cover and yet i still think there's a lot of meat on the bone but we'll cover as much as we can of that in the discussion so glenn why don't we do the recap first Lucy Comes to Stay is the first-person account of a woman named V. The story opens with V's friend Lucy telling her that she cannot go on this way. And of course, Lucy has to keep her voice down because V isn't supposed to have any visitors and the nurse's room is just down the hall. Lucy goes on to say that none of the efforts of V's husband George, not the doctors and specialists, not the sanitarium, and definitely not the new live-in nurse, will do any good. And that's because, Lucy insists, George and the doctors don't really want V to get better in the first place. It's all a show, and the new nurse is really just a guard to keep V imprisoned in her own home. V doesn't want to believe it, but deep down, she knows that Lucy is right. Yeah, I love the way this story opens with the first line of dialogue, and then it's Lucy speaking, and then immediately switches into first person. So there's some withholding of kind of the uh, technique at play. And there's also a, a strong level of um, plot withholding as things go on, go on in this story. Information is constantly withheld and then deployed. And it just makes this story such a pleasure to read, such a quick read. And you can get right from the beginning that this is playing with the trope of kind of the inconvenient woman and what the family is supposed to do with them. And I think that's going to come up a little bit in our discussion. Right. And Lucy is the friend who is championing V to stick up for herself in this family situation. Here, she wants to help V get out of the house, get out to see people, to visit her friends. But V reminds Lucy that she doesn't have any friends not after what she did at the party, which was the incident that landed her in the hospital in the first place. Now, Lucy says that this, too, is a lie from V's husband. Lucy's friends tried to see her in the hospital, but George wouldn't let them. And when they sent flowers, George had the flowers burned. 
George wants people to think that V is sick so that he can get rid of her and be with the nurse instead. V has some objections to Lucy's insinuations, but Lucy just laughs at V's naivete. Besides, V is shaking again, and this is something the doctors told her wouldn't happen anymore. Not the shaking, and not the dreams, or any of the other things. And if she's shaking again, that does indeed mean that the doctors have lied to her. It's indicated here that she's shaking also because she's in serious alcohol withdrawal. So she has gone to the sanatorium. Um, she has been in a hospital and now she's home. And maybe this is indicating that she was not cured of alcoholism. And when she came home, she started drinking again. And now they have a, a live-in nurse. From George's point of view, the treatment didn't work. And so maybe... He is trying to take care of her by himself, um, but it's also not working. Her shakes are delirium tremens here. And the incident at the party seems to be wrapped up in having gotten extremely drunk and been behaving, perhaps not necessarily inappropriately, but embarrassingly to George while he was entertaining clients and work friends. And I think those types of pressures might be something we want to talk about when we get to the discussion. But for now... We have come to the decisive action of the story. Lucy wants to help V escape. And Lucy reminds V that she has a little money of her own hidden away, enough to get out of this house and to hide for a little while. But they can't go now because it's still just the afternoon and V needs to sleep. But tonight, when the nurse has gone home, Lucy will come back and the two of them can escape. V gets dressed before she goes to sleep so that she can be ready to escape. And she cuts her own hair with some scissors, presumably so she'll be less recognizable. And when she falls asleep, she really sleeps for the first time in weeks. At least, until the dreams. But even then, she doesn't worry, because a dream is only a dream. There are a few things going on here that are worth pointing out. The first is that Lucy reminds V that she has... $50 that she can use to help fund her escape. And V doesn't remember telling Lucy this, but Lucy insists that V has told her about the money and she just can't remember. The next thing I want to draw our attention to is that after V gets dressed, Lucy calls her radiant, positively radiant. And the sun is going down and the sun reflects off the, the scissors that she uses and hurt her Eyes, And this is the first instance of about three in this story where the light reflecting on a surface like this really hurts her eyes. The light hurts these eyes. And this could be because she's badly hung over. Um, we don't know how long she's been in the bed here imprisoned in her own home. Um, it could just be a night or two and she's withdrawing from alcohol. And that's why the nurse is there. As many know, withdrawal from alcohol can kill you if you're badly addicted. But I just want to draw attention to the references to the light and the way it hurts her eyes. And the light that hurts her eyes in every instance is reflecting off of something. It's not direct light. That might be something we want to unpack, too. Well, later, Lucy shakes V awake. The door is open, and Lucy has the scissors in her hand to cut the phone wires with, she explains. George is asleep. Lucy had dumped some of V's sedative in his evening coffee, and now it's time to get out of here. The two of them walk out the front door without any trouble, and they take a bus to a rooming house on the south side. Lucy marches into the rooming house and rents a room for a week. 
Upstairs, V has the shakes again. Lucy tells her to shut up and stop shaking, and then gives her a present. Lucy has hidden a whole bottle of whiskey in V's purse, and V gets this bottle open in a hurry and guzzles it and feels better. But Lucy doesn't like this behavior. Lucy calls her a pig, but V says that she has to have it, and Lucy knows that. That's why she brought it. The two of them argue about V's drinking. They argue about how Lucy has done so much to help V, but if she's just going to get drunk, then Lucy will stop helping her. V whines about how she needs the booze and how she can't help herself, but Lucy isn't having it. She's tired of losing out to the bottle. She's tired of coming in second. Right. Lucy is giving V a a real dose of tough love. She reminds her that she will never know what she did for V, that, that V will never understand the extent to which Lucy is committed to her. We also get an instance in this section, once again, where the light glinting off the bottle, or glittering as it says in the text, doesn't bother her eyes. This is a golden glittering, though we'll see in a moment that this, there's a reversal here when she sees the bottle after Lucy leaves. I also like the way Lucy criticizes V's drinking. She asks V the question, why can't you just take a shot and then leave it alone? That's all I ask. And this is like a classic misunderstanding of, of the alcoholic struggle. It also indicates that Lucy brought the bottle so that V could ease her withdrawal, not get drunk again. And Lucy here also says that, as you pointed out, Glenn, that V will always choose somebody else over the bottle. And this just outrages Lucy to the point where she does have to leave. Right. Lucy goes. She just walks out of this hotel room and V loses control. And when she wakes up, the landlady and the doctor and the nurse and a policeman are all there. They found George dead in his bed, a pair of scissors in his throat. V knows, of course, that Lucy did this and that she did it on purpose to frame V for the murder because she was angry about their argument. But the nurse says that she's never seen Lucy. And the woman who operates this hotel says that the only person she's seen here is V, even though we know that Lucy is the one who rented the room. But the doctor knows what is going on, as I'm sure everyone else does at this point. He brings V a mirror and asks if she can see Lucy in the reflection. And she can. And now it is all right again, even when V drops the mirror and it shatters. Lucy is back with her now and won't ever leave again. The two of them laugh as the doctor walks away, leaving V to lean on the bars of a prison cell. I want to make it clear here that Lucy is not the reflection of V herself, but Lucy is standing behind V in in the mirror. And this is another instance. Uh, Of course, a mirror is a reflective surface that requires light in order to operate. And this is how she sees Lucy is through this light. And then when she breaks the mirror, it hurts her eyes. This, this is the point. This kind of fracture really hurts her eyes. And I just, I just want to make sure we're pointing out where all of these instances of the, the kind of wrong sorts of light reflecting into V's eyes cause pain. But yeah, that's the end of the story. I love the way it ends. Uh, Lucy is with V forever and they laugh like they're crazy because they are. <laughs> the end. All right. Well, Brandon, I'm I'm excited to see what you've got for us to talk about in this short story that that's a real early work of Robert Bloch's. Right. It seems very slight to me, this story. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized there's, there's, there's a couple things going on here, particularly when we think about 
um, the culture surrounding mental health in the 1950s and really after World War II when soldiers are coming home. This led to works like Three Faces of Eve, which is a classic um, case study that was published in 1957 and turned into a movie uh, about dissociative identity disorder. There's one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was published in 1962. There's the the bill that passed while John F. Kennedy was in office that allowed some of these institutions to shut down and move the mentally ill into group homes. And this was the result of a new type of medication that kind of calmed these people down because the fear was that they were violent. And this is kind of part of a culture that leads to really the closing of all of these institutions in the, in the 1980s. And it really the first wave of this started in the 1950s. But before we dig really deep into that, I just want to ask the question, Glenn, what is wrong with V? Is she suffering from some form of dissociative identity disorder? I'm going to let you answer that question first, and then I'm going to throw you maybe a curveball, but you might cover it in your answer. So certainly my first reading of this story took for granted that this is a story about a woman who is having some sort of dissociative personality disorder. This is based on the fact that I've seen the movie Psycho a number of times, and that movie is also about a person who's struggling with his identity and is perhaps having multiple personalities contained within him. But there is something interesting going on with the names in this text. And maybe the first thing to do is to to remind people that you have rightly emphasized the presence of light and reflective light in this story. Lucy struck me as being short for Lucifer, and V is is a nickname for Vivian, which is related to the, the Latin word for being alive, for life. This seems to be almost an allegory of the Garden of Eden story in which the serpent is corrupting Eve through uh, trickery, through being a false friend selling happiness and and freedom and and liberty and control so this really might actually be a story about a demon who has possessed or is trying to possess v yeah that was going to be really my next question about this is is this a mental health story is this is this like psycho where we're seeing somebody's uh psyche fracture into pieces and losing control to a dominant personality or is this a story of demonic possession? And it turns out that the history between this sense of dissociative identity disorder and demonic possession is really deeply intertwined. And we can say that there weren't a lot of stories about this really before Robert Block maybe popularized this sort of thing. And now it's everywhere. Of course, there's the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And there, there's all sorts of stories uh, uh, about the inconvenient woman who was hid away by the family and, and, and the abusive husband to point to the abuse that many people knew that was taking place in, in these asylums, in these state institutions. Of course, the Kennedy family famously did this with one of their daughters. But going back as far as Paracelsus in the 16th century, this sort of switching of personalities was thought to be a sort of somnambulistic state, that the conscious mind would go to sleep, and then the new personality would emerge. By the time you get to the 19th century, leading up to World War I, spiritualism is exploding all over the place. And this is, you know, 
mediums who are channeling spirits by entering into a, a trance or hypnosis. And this is not to mention, of course, like the oracles of Delphi and all of these uh, religious associations with the possession of spirits to get control or information or some form of meaning that is missing in life. Uh, we know that Arthur Conan Doyle was an avid lover of spiritualism and that Houdini really did as much as he could to discredit this movement. So for me, I because a lot of the writing about this sort of thing comes out after Robert Block has published this story, my, my thought is that he's pulling on a much older tradition of the spiritualism, this potential for possession by spirits, and whether or not modern medicine can combat this. And it's really also tied up in the cultural critiques of the time of how these state institutions are, are being run. And there's certainly a rich tradition of this type of story within horror literature itself. You already mentioned Jekyll and Hyde, Conan Doyle, who, who you know is on the cusp of weird fiction. A lot of times we're going to cover him eventually, has some stories like this as well. Dracula, right? We have Renfield, who maybe is a crazy person or maybe is just in some sort of telepathic communication with Dracula. But this story in particular seemed to be riffing on the very famous story, The Yellow Wallpaper, which is a, a real classic that we will have to get to on this podcast eventually, that is asking the question, is this woman insane or is something supernatural going on? And of course, we're left really with that unresolved, much as maybe we are here. And this story seemed to me a young Robert Block just beginning his writing career playing with that idea in that tradition, but that it is being influenced by the changing understanding of what mental illness is, and also who it can affect, and what our social responsibilities to the afflicted are. Yeah, I totally forgot about the yellow wallpaper, which is one of my favorite stories. I don't know why I didn't make that association. I'm really glad you brought that up. That is really one of the most chilling stories I think I've ever read. And you're also right to point out the kind of changing conception of who needs this type of care. After World War II, the diagnostic manual at the time, which wasn't really fully formed uh, yet, was amended to add a lot of conditions that soldiers returning were experiencing. And the fact that these American heroes were sometimes getting committed to these institutions really shown a light on them and a need to understand the effects of trauma on the human mind that were not just a fractured mind or a broken mind. Or if you go back in time, the, the, the idea of like the holy fool, these people that were necessarily need to be necessarily needed to be kept outside of society because they were touched in some way. And even that notion of being touched is when we say a mentally ill person is touched, if we ever use that anymore, that was a term that was used, refers to like the touch of God and ability to see the world for what it really is and the inability for others to see the truth in that in return. So I feel like the story is just caught up in all of these social issues that are taking place at the time that really become popular in the 50s and 60s, really culminating, I think, probably in the movie Psycho. The Robert Block wrote a, wrote a like six really schlocky horror movies for like a B-movie company in the 70s. So I guess the next question I want to move into is really just have a conversation about horror and the function of horror in our society. On one level, horror is a sort of story, a type of story 
that maximizes the fears of our time in order to either raise them to the level of public consciousness or to bring about a moment of catharsis where we're able to separate ourselves from our fears just for a moment and, and handle them in, in a kind of new light. But on another level, too, horror always requires that something is present where it should not be present. And in this story, the, the presence of Lucy is that element in which Lucy might just be an allegory for the evils of alcoholism. But I wonder if something else is going on here. So one, Glenn, I just want to ask you, what do you think Robert Block is doing with horror in this story by casting a woman in this in this role? What types of issues is he trying to raise? And if it is sort of a demonic possession story, what, what is the presence of doctors and the hospital doing? What is Robert Block trying to say about this, given the context of his time? Well, first thing I'll say is I'm not sure that Block knew what he was trying to say in this story. I think that this is him practicing with some of these ideas that he has that are going to get fully fleshed out in the masterpiece that Psycho is. But here I think there are, there are a number of really interesting things going on in in this story, and in particular thinking about it as a story that is coming out of the United States after World War II. It's an extraordinarily small sample size and a totally unfair statistic that I'm about to drop on us here, but 100% of the stories that we have read so far on this show that have been written since World War II have been about mental illness, or at least about someone who is being hospitalized or treated for mental illness, though who may not actually have a mental illness. That's the the frolic by Ligotti is the other story. Both of these writers do other things. There's more going on to contemporary horror than than that. But this is, a, I think, a special concern of the world in the 50s, the 60s, 70s, 80s, this sort of post-war, this Cold War world, perhaps, in particular. And this is reflecting a world that has changed. Our social structures are different. Our economic structures are different. People are not in their communities anymore. And it is interesting to note that we see that V is isolated from other people who might care about her or care for her. She has lost her friends because of this incident at the party, which suggests that they're superficial friends. They weren't actually friends. Where are her parents? Where's her, I don't know, sister, cousins or something like that? We don't see any of that. Where is their priest or minister? Where's a religious figure that their family might have a relationship with? So there's an isolation of people that it happens in Cold War America that persists today. And I think that's something that's happening here. But there is also a democratization of access to healthcare and to treatment that happens as a result of the economic boon in the United States. And it means that people of all sorts of classes are being are able to get treatment and they're being recognized as suffering from an ailment and not simply being left to be homeless because of it or dismissed because of it or locked up in prison because of this that we are beginning to understand that this is an affliction that can affect any type of person and in fact affects every type of person so i think those are some of the the social things that are are happening that make mental health, mental illness, a a real concern. But there's also a dark side. Clearly, there's a dark side. We're talking about a horror story, and Block is exploring that here, which is not just that we're recognizing what mental illness is 
and that treatment is changing because of the way people's lives are changing, but that maybe we're even becoming more prone to suffering from mental illness because of some of these changes, that because we are untethered in this world in some ways, as a result of the social mobility that has come with all of the the economic boom after World War II, that it is creating problems in people that are manifesting in these really horrific ways, that there are new threats to society that are coming from within and are the result of isolation and loneliness and the loss of something that used to hold society together. I think those are some of the things that Block is playing with, you know, and we can see those themes in Psycho, where the person who is afflicted with this is someone who's completely isolated, who never had relationships with anyone other than his mother, and that all of those things are are problematic. There's also, in that story, the theme of the highway having shifted and the economic effects that has on the motel and how that isolates this community in California. All of those things are going on at more depth and more length in Psycho. But I think those are the things that Robert Block is thinking about here. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one question this story is trying to raise, and I'm really glad you brought up the question of where is the religious institution in this story. This is the 1950s in America. We know that, you know, historically these institutions began to break down really between in the interwar period between World War One and World War Two. maybe even a little earlier as industrialization rose. Um, but by World War Two, this, this is really brought into question. And I, I wonder if Bloch is interrogating on some level the notion that we can expand these treatments these definitions, we have a whole new, I don't know, you could call it doxology or dogma of what's wrong with everybody. And because that's how we're looking at people, that is what we, that is what we see. And then whether or not we can trust that these new definitions are how we ought to be defined by a society. Now, clearly, V is deeply troubled. She does have either demonic possession or a split personality. But if we take that reading that it's demonic possession, I think Block is really asking the question, are we missing something when we subject these people to treatment? Is there more to treat than just brain states and brain chemistry? And should we put all of our trust in the wellness of our society in the hands of doctors who work in jails for the criminally insane? And that's the function of Lucy in this story is that V is being treated, but it's almost like she's being handled clinically, that no one cares about her as a person. They do care about her perhaps as a patient or as something to fix, but she seems to just desperately be yearning for or is certainly susceptible to someone who sees her as a person and cares about her wants and her needs, someone who is on her side, someone who can be her champion. And that's what Lucy is, whether this has been born out of her subconscious or really is a demonic being who has befriended her, who has uh, preyed upon her vulnerability in this way. Right. And the doctor here at the end isn't really even interested in curing her, just removing her from the street. 
And this was a big part of the movement that led to the closing of these institutions. And this is a big part of the trope of the, you know, I've been saying the inconvenient woman. I don't really know if there's a better name for it uh, in literature of, of the family that hides the one family member away who's an embarrassment or something like that. Um, and it's almost always a woman, I think, in literature. Yeah, yeah almost um, always. <laughs> <laughs> um, for better or worse. I mean, it's, it's what we have. So th- I think that that's also what's going on here is part of the abuse of this system is still the treatment of women, their inability to have a voice and the ease in which they were able to be institutionalized because they are a hurdle on the way to some man's success. There's, you know, there's a, ah, man, there's so many stories about the kind of wealthy heiress who marries the wrong man and he put, he, you know, gaslights her. I mean, gaslighting is, is the name of a movie that's about this kind of exact thing that power and control and in order to kind of prey upon the woman's power and wealth and silence her in the process. And, and I think there's just so much going on in this story that whether Block is doing it on purpose or whether he's just an astute observer of culture has absorbed these new sorts of concerns that culture has that are in line with his interests that he explores through his fiction, including his most famous piece. And this story has me real excited to cover more of Block, uh, the more mature Block in the future. Of course, we're also eventually going to get to some of his mythos stories and that sort of thing. But I really enjoy this story. I mean, this is a, a young writer on the cusp of amateurism and professionalism who is really engaging with the tradition of weird fiction and also what he sees happening in the world around him. And I think as his craft is honed and his eye becomes even better at observation, I think we're going to get some real great stories from Block in the future. Yeah, this story definitely made me want to read more Block and watch his uh, schlocky horror movies as well that he wrote. <laughs> so, because I love them. All right. But I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com, including our Star Trek podcast, Lower Decks. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of Lucy Comes to Stay. I'd love to learn more about this concern about mental health in the 1950s. If any of our listeners have expertise, I'd love to hear whether or not you agree that Lucy is demonic or whether this is a story about mental health or what the intersection is there. It's very complicated, I think, for a very simple story. And we've gotten now into our regular schedule in which we'll release episodes every other week. So we'll be back in a fortnight with The Insanity of Jones by Algernon Blackwood, who's one of my favorites. So until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>